What the footy? What the footy? What the footy? What the footy? Hi there, it's Paul, and you're listening to What the Footy, the podcast that takes football fans behind the scenes. Here is what I have lined up for you to. And if you're a club of our size, you you've got to think of innovative ways to compete. Um, and over the last sort of few years, we you know we've. We feel we've competed well. You know, we, we've beaten Man City, we've beaten Man United, we've beaten Liverpool, we've beaten Tottenham, beaten Arsenal. This is the What The Footy podcast. I hope you love it. Not like it, I hope you love it. Download, subscribe, rate and review and tell a friend to tell a friend. Let's go. Knew some other guys liked me, but I didn't know it was to that Imagine extent. Imagine being a kid in primary school, now supporting <laughs> Arsenal. Powerful people and I think they need to recognise that, but then also, they need to be represented the right way. Sport in general is nothing without fans. Uh, based on you know, one single source of revenue alone, that being the TV. Let's just win this to appease the fan. Great to have you on the podcast today, Paul. I've been meaning to wanting to get you on for a long time because of a lot of the guests that I get on, your name and, and the people sort of who work within the football club always mentioned, whether that's sort of Stuart Nolans or sort of Dan Parnell. So it's great to, great to have your time and, and chat with you. Thank you. Great to be on. Now, so we always start off the show this question, which is what is football to you, a business or a sport and why? Well, it's both, to be honest, for me. Um, why? Because uh, as the sport, it's something I've loved since I was a small kid and, and started playing when I think probably around six or seven years of age. I think I first got into a, a local uh, kids club and, and started playing. And obviously over the last 25 years, uh, a business because it's become my career. And uh, I'm always very grateful for the opportunity to work in football. It's something I've always loved. And um, it, to be honest, doesn't feel like work most days. No, that's brilliant. But yeah, obviously you've been at the club since 2012, uh, 10 years now. And I saw that you recently signed a long-term deal with the club. What, what was it about sort of Tony's vision, the club and sort of the project that made you want to join Brighton back in 2012 and continue to sort of do, do the amazing work that you're doing there now? Um, well, to be honest, I, I've been really lucky um, in, in the career I've had in football over the last 25 years. I was lucky enough to work at the FA and work with the England team at, at World Cups and European Championships. I then got an opportunity to work for my boyhood club uh, in North London, Tottenham Hotspur, and, and then a move to Major League Soccer. And the chance to join Brighton was, you know, was something that I, I jumped on. I'd never worked in the championship. I'd never been at a club that had effectively reinvented itself the way Brighton had. Um, I hadn't had the opportunity to, to effectively work in a brand new stadium. Um, and Tony Bloom's vision for the club was something that captivated me, excited me. And I genuinely thought we had a, a really good chance of fulfilling his vision, which was to get the club to the Premier League and, and hopefully stay there. So here we are 10 years later and uh, I'm still here. Um, and we have got to the Premier League and we have so far stayed there, but it's obviously getting harder and harder each year. Um, but I still enjoy the job, Paul. It's a fantastic club and a, a great part of the world to live in. No, that's awesome. And obviously you're going into your sixth season now in the Premier League. And obviously last season was a great season, finishing in the top 10, which I know is is the ambition of the club to be doing that on a regular basis. But obviously, as we know, within football, with this sort of success that you're sort of having, 
comes a lot of eyeballs, whether that's on Graham Potter, whether that's on the incredible plays you've sort of been producing, whether that's Ben White coming to Arsenal or Mark Kukurea as well. So how do you sort of work around succession planning and sort of thinking ahead and sort of navigating that? Because previously speaking with people like whether that's Les Reed at Southampton when he was there as well, always talking about keeping things ticking over. So how, how do you almost plan for that, Brian? Well, first of all, we, we have to find ways of competing with the biggest clubs that's not on transfer fees or, or salaries. So the academy is a really important part of that. Um, we've, we've had our academy now running for coming up to, to a decade. Um, it's producing really good players that are making it through, not just to our first team, but, but other first teams up and down the country. We've also got a, a very good strategy of recruiting young players who are not part of our academy, but are unfinished talent that we think that we can add a level of expertise to through our coaching, through our development programs, through our loans. Um, and where possible, using both the academy and that process to avoid having to pay big transfer fees in, in, in the market. Um, and of course, you know, not every player that comes through our academy or comes through that uh, system of, of sort of finishing the talent, if you like, is going to make it into our first team. So there's an opportunity if we can make them better to sell those players at a profit, which we can then reinvest where we need to in, in buying more finished talent for the first team or investing in experienced players like Adam Lalana and Danny Wildbeck, who can come in and not just do a fantastic job for us on the field, but also do a great job for us off the field, helping to develop that young talent uh, and, and setting really high standards around the club. And if you're a club of our size, you, you've got to think of innovative ways to compete. Um, and over the last sort of few years, we, you know, we've, we feel we've competed well. You know, we, we've beaten Man City, we've beaten Man United, we've beaten Liverpool, we've beaten Tottenham, beaten Arsenal. Haven't quite yet managed to beat Chelsea, but you know, we're, we're competing to, to, to against these clubs who have got far greater resources than us um, and have, have obviously got a lifetime, effectively, of experience in the Premier League, which we don't have. So it's hard, but it's doable. And and hopefully, you know, other clubs that are aspiring to get promoted to the Premier League and stay there can can look at what we've done and maybe take little bits of it. But I think every every club is different. Every club has their own unique identity and ways of doing things. Um, our particular way works for us. Yeah, and no, that's that's really interesting. It's sort of speaking about different way of doing things. Obviously, one of the biggest sort of changes within football over the last sort of five to ten years is the the role of the sporting director, technical director. How, how do you sort of see the role and define the role? Obviously, you had Dan in there as well. And now you have sort of David, who's been promoted into the role, um, sort of speaking to people within the game and stuff in regards to the sporting director role. A lot of people push for the sporting director to be on the board because they can sort of influence and sort of have that seat at the table. Obviously, Dan wasn't on the board, but it seems to just work so seamlessly, seamlessly with you guys. How do you sort of see the role and sort of define it? Yeah, I think I think there's a very important distinction between the first team manager or head coach, as we call it, who who really is focused on the here and now, the day to day, the week to week, because that's all about results. Whereas we want the sporting director and technical director to look at the medium to longer term. You know, what what are we going to have coming through our pipeline next season, the season after five years time? So they're two very different focuses. In our case, our technical director, David Weir, reports directly to myself and, and has a, a very, very close link with the chairman as well. Obviously, works very closely with, with Graham. So in terms of access and, and uh, ability to influence, David comes to every board meeting. He has that influence. He has that access. 
And obviously, when you've played as many games at the top level as, as David has, you know, in, in this country, in Scotland, for, for his country, um, you know, he brings a wealth of talent and experience from, from his own background that, that really does actually help our, our, our football um, strategy. Dan had a, a had a different background, much more sort of coaching based, academy based, which again was hugely valuable. So Dan laid great foundations for us in that role, and now we're very much hoping that David, who's still very new in the job, is going to take it on uh, another level. But you know, the technical director's role has to be focused on the medium to longer term. Otherwise, what tends to happen if they're too focused on the short term is that's when you get the conflicts with managers and, and head coaches because. The technical directors sort of getting too involved in the day to day, which is not what their job is about, certainly not from our club's point of view. So it's an important distinction between the two roles. But, you know, so far, we've really enjoyed how it worked with Dan and David's made a fantastic start in the role here as well. And that's that's really good to hear, because I think one thing that sort of stands out about Brighton as well is your ability to sort of stick with the plan, um, whether that's how you want to play football whether that's in terms of the manager, whether that's in terms of bringing players through, how, how do you almost sort of communicate that to the wider sort of media and to the fans? Well, because as we know, within football, it's an absolute pressure cooker when you've got the media piling and you've got fans, obviously, uh, to, to, to almost be held accountable to as well. Yeah, I think everybody in life, um, and I would include myself in that, has become sort of much more short-term focused in many ways. You know, we want success now. We want that product delivered today not tomorrow um, we're not prepared to wait for anything anymore so football you know unfortunately is is not a business that necessarily can produce instant results yes you get good good results on the back of a sometimes a managerial change or a new signing coming in but for the long term you've actually got to have a very clear and consistent plan and our vision is to try and be a top 10 premier league club um, and a top four women's super league club but that doesn't mean to say that's going to happen every season. And it doesn't mean to say if you've achieved it once, you've achieved it. You know, it is a long term uh, plan that we have and a vision that we have. And we know that there's going to be some bumps in the road. You know, sport, top level sport, any level of sport actually isn't isn't a straight line of success. You know, very rarely do you get that kind of progress. You, you go up and you go down and you you have some bumps in the road that you have to be able to be resilient to withstand. And what we try and do is to build a plan build our resources, build out our, our strategies to be resilient. And that means that we expect and anticipate bumps in the road. And when they come along, we hope that they don't actually derail our progress. They may set us back a little bit. They may set us back a lot. But what they won't do is actually change our overall long-term vision for the club. And in terms of communicating that, I think you just have to be honest with fans. You have to be transparent. Um, you have to be prepared to respond to lots of emails. Uh, last night I was with with a group of our fans in, in a, in a, in a um, part of Sussex where we hold regular fans forums and it was an hour and a half of constant questioning about, you know, what are we doing? How are we doing it? Where are these players coming from? What are we going to do with Mark Cucurella? You know, why did we sell Ben White? You know, what kind of strategy does the, the club have if we're prepared to sell our best players? But the reality is if you're a club of our size, you have to at certain points be prepared to sell your best players because that enables us to reinvest and, and to progress into the future. So I think transparency is the key, Paul. You've got to be open and, and you've got to be prepared to talk. Yeah, no, definitely. And do you almost feel like your previous experiences with the FA in England, working on that sort of marketing and communication side and sort of being in and around that has almost 
helped you and almost made you think about engaging with the fans in a different way than, say, a, a different chief executive, a different football club, perhaps? Oh, 100%. I mean, I think that traditionally, and I'm going back away here, you know, chief executives tended to come from a finance background or a legal background. Um, I think increasingly chief executives have communications and marketing backgrounds. And I think that helps. I think it, you know, it helps with the understanding of, of, of different stakeholders in the game. It helps with the ability to communicate with those stakeholders. It doesn't mean to get everything right. Still, you know, there's still the the moments where you think, wow, I wish I'd made a different decision there. And I think the thing about football is you're making very often 100 decisions a week, 200 decisions a week. You can't get all of them right. But what you've got to be prepared to be is accountable for them. And you've got to be prepared to communicate why you've made a certain decision and what the rationale was. And, and occasionally you're going to have to be prepared to, to put your hand up and, and, and say you got it wrong. Hopefully that doesn't happen too often. And no one likes to do that but in football when you're making so many decisions it's inevitable that not every one of them is going to be the right one and sometimes it may take a year or two or more before you realize it was the wrong turn that you took sometimes you can realize within seconds you've, you've made the wrong turn um but yeah I, I think the background that I've had has helped and certainly 25 years in football has given me a lot of perspective and um, the game is constantly changing so just when you think you got it nailed something happens or something comes along and you think, no, I really haven't. And, and that's the that's the beauty of this game. That's what keeps us all interested in it. Uh, that's what keeps us all excited by it. So, um, yeah, it's it's a, it's it's good to have the background I've had, but I think that the depth of experience in the game of football is is also really important. No, that's, that's super useful. And just sort of speaking on sort of the game changing as well, um, as you sort of mentioned, compete with other clubs as well. We've seen obviously an increasing amount of sort of private equity investment into football, professional investors and sort of different types of owners coming in. Um, and also I think what we've seen as well is owners like maybe like a Tony or a Steve Parrish who sort of boyhood fans of the clubs that they own and sort of are involved with sort of almost diminishing a little bit as well when we've seen whether that's West Ham or Leeds taking, selling off sort of minority stakes in order to get further investment coming in. How do you sort of see the, see the future of the outlook from an ownership perspective in terms of being able to compete and still be sustainable as well by still also improving the players' squad and competing? Yeah, I think you've you've hit a really good point because I think the, the ownership of clubs, the structure of the ownership of clubs has changed quite a quite substantially in the last decade it's now quite rare certainly at the top level to have an owner like ours who was was born in the city grew up supporting the club has family history on the board of the club um and is is just dedicated to trying to make this football club his football club the, the best it can be you know steve parish does the same to, to to an extent at crystal palace although of course he has overseas partners as well to support him but again they do they would do a very good job and have done a great job in, in keeping crystal palace at the top level and then you've got daniel levy who's a very very long term and, and successful chairman of the club and has done a great job there as well but if you look beyond that there are there aren't too many other sort of long-term or locally based owners. And a lot of the, the bigger clubs now have got substantial investors, whether they're overseas sovereign wealth funds, whether they're big institutional investors, you know, stock market listings in, in other countries, or just big um, organisations that invest in, in sport in, in lots of different ways, like Liverpool, for example. 
Um, they've all got their different reasons for investing. They've all got their different um, objectives in terms of rates of return. They've all got their different aspirations. And it doesn't mean that ours is right and theirs is wrong. It's just it's important if you're a fan to understand exactly what your owner's aspirations and expectations are, because they will be different. And, you know, for us, you know, we lose a lot of money every year. So part of my job is to try and make us more sustainable, less reliant on Tony, um, less reliant on, on, on his generosity to, to keep us going into the future. Um, for some of the bigger clubs, you know, they have far greater resources and, and, and a greater ability to sustain losses over a period of time. But, you know, that's the strange uh, anomaly within football is that sometimes even the most successful clubs are still losing huge amounts of money. Look at Barcelona. Um, and that's something we've got to change. We've got to find a way of actually getting our business under a, a, a higher level, a greater degree of control, because we just can't rely on wealthy people to keep sustaining our industry forever. Um, it has seemed that way that we've been sustained by wealthy people forever. And somehow every year we generate more money and we spend more money. But that really can't go on way into the future. We have got to find a way of getting under control. And, and do you almost feel like it's time to bring in sort of cost controls, whether that's around transfer fees or or salaries? Obviously, inflation's going through the roof right now as well. And then you have the inflationary, natural inflationary nature of the transfer market as well. Do we need some sort of mechanisms? Obviously, I know that every Thursday there are the sort of the shareholder meetings that go on. Do we do we sort of need to need to sort of introduce those? There in other sports to a degree as well. Do, do you think we need it or? Um, well, if we if we if we bring it in, in in the UK, it's really important that we we bring it in right the way across the football world, because if we actually limit ourselves in a way that actually makes us uncompetitive with other countries, then simply what will happen is there'll be a talent drain. US sports are, you know, past masters at, at, at setting salary caps and maintaining them because essentially players are not moving out of their country. They're staying within that system, staying within the, the different leagues that, that they operate. For us, it's a lot more different. You know, we have a, a lot more of an open process when it comes to players moving between Spain and England and Italy and France and, and Holland and Germany. So it, it, it actually is, is something, if it's going to happen, and of course, UEFA have tried with, with their financial fair play measures and, and the English leagues have got various mechanisms that are designed to try and keep a control of spending, then we have to make sure that it fits with the European system, the wider European system, otherwise we're going to disadvantage ourselves. But I think we do have to look really hard at how we make this business more uh, sustainable for the future and give our owners a, a reasonable chance, if not of making money, then of not losing as much money, because it, it really doesn't look great. Uh, it isn't great. And at some point in the future, it, it may actually you know, cause us more, even more significant problems than we've seen in, in recent times. No one likes to see a football club disappear from their community. You know, that's the most important thing of all is making sure that different communities up and down the, the country still have their football club at the end of each season. Um, therefore, we've got to find a way of, of, of making it easier for that to happen. Yeah, and I think definitely also linked to that as well. A big thing, obviously, is the broadcasting revenues. And they, they've also been a big aid in sort of helping clubs to generate generate a lot of income. And for a lot of clubs, the broadcasting sort of commercial revenue coming in exceeds sort of match day revenue. Where do you almost sit on the sort of broadcasting sort of situation now? We're sort of seeing sort of more tech players come into the, come into the market. We saw MLS create a groundbreaking exclusive deal with Apple. 
how do you sort of sit on the sort of the current model with traditional sort of broadcasters versus new in, uh, sort of new incumbents coming in? Because I know obviously at the FA you negotiated some some of these agreements with, with sort of different broadcasters as well. Yeah, it's um, it, it's a long time since I was negotiating broadcast <laughs> agreements directly, but um, but yeah, I mean, look, Sky, BT, BBC, uh, Talksport. Five Live, they've all been fantastic partners for, for the Premier League over, over many, many years. Uh, ITV have, have supported the FA with the FA Cup and England matches and, and you know, other broadcasters have also helped. And they've, I think they've done an amazing job, certainly during my lifetime in working in football, 25 years. They've helped us to grow the game, to generate lots of new revenues, to be able to attract the best talent. Um, but they are definitely now beginning to see competition from, from the apples of this world, as we saw with MLS. And that's because we produce great content. You know, we you know, the, the Premier League, particularly the EFL as well, produce fantastic football matches every single week, every season. There are drama, um, dramas, th- you know, up and down the country that people just love. So because we're producing great content, because we're attracting the world's best players, because generally speaking, we've got some really, really well-run foot- football clubs at every level in this country, um, others want a part of that. And it's good for the game that there are potential new entrants that are looking to come in. And I think we've also, as, a, as an industry, got to be really open-minded to some of the ideas that, that the new entrants are, are bringing, whether that's different camera angles, whether that's more access, whether that's um, different ways of actually presenting our, our, our sport. Um, and at the same time, we've also got an, an increasing industry of, of our own channels that we're developing, whether that's on social media, through Twitter and 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 other platforms, whether that's through our own TV platforms, whether that's through other, you know, yet to be discovered um, technologies that are going to come along in the next five to 10 years. I think it's a really exciting time, not just for football, but for sport generally, because content is still king and people love watching live sport because of the drama, because of the jeopardy, because of the unknown. And that is what's so different um, about what we do and, and, and what we produce each week. Yeah, and, and there's also been a lot of talk in recent years about the Premier League going direct and almost becoming its own sort of broadcaster. Obviously, kind of like what the MLS have sort of doing in the joint venture with with Apple. Do you think the clubs, generally speaking, would be sort of for for something like that? Obviously, give give some money back in the pockets of fans, and obviously um, a way to sort of increase increase revenue as well. Do you think the clubs would, would sort of favour that direction? or I think there's a trade-off, as always, between you know the, the, the revenues we generate from broadcast and the impact that has on fans. On the one hand, there's no doubt that the revenues we've generated from broadcast has helped us keep ticket prices down. They're not low. They're still too high for many people, and that, that worries me and worries all of us. But on the other hand, um, the broadcast coverage has also opened up a massive audience that wouldn't necessarily come and watch live football in the stadium or couldn't come watch live football in the stadium so we've 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 had to sort of have this trade-off and of course the fans that do come to the stadium have also had their kickoff times impacted and the days of the week in which they watch the game so all these things are big trade-offs and, and another trade-off would be if we went direct to consumers if the premier league came up with its own tv channel it's not again not impossible but it would have to be with you know a, a confidence that we were going to be able to generate the same levels of revenues that pay the wage bills that we've all created as our current broadcast partners. And then, of course, there's the whole loyalty to the current broadcast partners and, and how they've helped us over the last 30 years to, to get to the stage that we've got to with our sport. So it's a really complex uh, set of uh, issues to discuss. 
but again, I think the best businesses, whether it's sport or, or other sectors, are successful when they keep an open mind, when they're prepared to innovate, when they're prepared to take some risk, when they're prepared to do things differently, and when they're prepared to listen ultimately to, in our case, fans, but their customers. Um, and that's something, again, you know, we, we cannot be um, ignorant uh, to. We've got to be prepared to, to listen to the market and listen to our fans and, and listen to their, to their needs going forward. No, that's useful. Last question we always ask is what the footy needs to change or happen within your space? I would like to see the game a little bit more unified more often. You know, I think around the European Super League, it was incredible how much the game came together to effectively kill that concept in, in 24, 48 hours. It was incredible. And yet other times, you know, we've got too many sort of warring sort of words different factions trying to create, you know, different situations for, for, for their own advantage. And I, I'd quite like to see football a little bit more unified, the EFL, the Premier League, the FA really working hard. They do, but even harder to, to try and find solutions to some of the game's problems. And, and we all know that the, the pyramid is the most valuable thing that we have in our country. It's the mired around the world. And we've got to make sure that we find a way to make sure that, that the, the pyramid is as sustainable as possible. And I don't know what the answers are. I haven't got the answers. And, and, and certainly I spend a lot of time thinking about it. But what I do know is that we, we've got a, a fantastic industry and we've got to protect it at all costs. Uh, that's super useful. Paul, thank you for your time. Appreciate you coming on the What The Footy podcast and uh, some definitely, definitely some gems there that people can sort of take away. So uh, thank you for your time. No problem, Paul. Great to be on and, and thanks for the opportunity. Guys, thank you so much for listening to today's episode when I started the pod back in early 2020 and had the idea in the back end of 2019. This is the level of episodes that I wanted to bring to you with top quality C-suite execs across football from all different departments. And yeah, I hope you loved it. And guys, please, please, please remember to subscribe on your chosen podcast platform to hit five stars as well. Appreciate the love every time. Hit me up and I'll be back in a fortnight for the next episode. Have a blessed week. Peace and love every time. Let's go. What the footy? What the footy? What the footy? What the footy? Knew some other guys liked me, but I didn't know it was to that extent. Imagine being a kid in primary school. Now it's putting us. Powerful people and I think they need to recognise that. But then also... They need to be represented the right way. Sport in general is nothing without fans. Uh, based on you know, one single source of revenue alone, that being the TV. Let's win in the league. Let's just win this to appease the fans.